Welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart. I hesitate to say that election season is back because it feels like it's always here these days. Maybe the best thing to say is what election is here. This time it's midterm season and a lot of context is packed into this election. We've got President Joe Biden, who's been in office for two years with Democratic control of Congress. There's also redistricting that happened, changing the districts that New Mexicans vote in. And then, of course, you've got some of the state's biggest offices that are up for grabs. Yeah, we've got the New Mexico governor's office. We have the attorney general's office, all three of New Mexico's federal congressional seats and every seat in New Mexico's state house. All of those races are on the ballot for this upcoming November general election, and we're talking about it all today with a familiar voice here on the podcast. UNM political science professor Gabe Sanchez joins us in studio today. He's not only an educator, he's a professional pollster and KRQE News 13's go-to analyst for political perspective. Gabe, thanks for coming back. Oh, my pleasure. I always appreciate talking with you folks and digging into some of these New Mexico politics. Absolutely. Well, let's start out without getting into the details of the races, which we will get into, but I always like to ask some kind of high-level perspective of you. If you could maybe point to something with this year's midterm, something that says to you, that's 2022. What do you think this election is about? How do you sort of define this midterm, maybe? Well, I mean, big picture, especially if we think about the federal races, you know, this is obviously a referendum on President Biden and his administration. Um, Just for some context, you know, as political scientists, we always know, you know, coming off a presidential election cycle, especially when one party is perceived to have the control of Congress as well as the executive, it's always a referendum on how that administration is doing. And you always anticipate, you know, the quote unquote normal vote across the country means that Democrats are projected and always have been to lose seats. That's just what happens. Folks might not remember same conversation in 2018. It was just a question of how many seats are Republicans going to lose. And it's almost that same conversation. Now we're just talking about the Democratic side. So as you look across our landscape here in New Mexico, really all eyes are down south in our southern congressional district, which is often perceived as somewhat of a bellwether. Right. Because the tightness and and the closeness of those elections is sometimes viewed as like maybe that's partly what's going to be going on nationally. So I think in terms of the federal races, obviously, that's where we're going to spend most of our time, I imagine, on election night talking about that race that is projected to be pretty close. And, you know, a lot of it even filtering down into the governor's race and some of the legislative races. A lot of this has really been nationalized, if you will, meaning candidates either trying to attach Uh, Their opposition to the Biden administration, if we're talking about Republicans and obviously the Democrats are still trying to connect folks to former President Trump. So in many ways, right, this is somewhat of a national barometer election here in New Mexico. Yeah. And let's get into some of the races, Uh, starting with the biggest of them all here in New Mexico, the governor's race. Democratic incumbent Michelle Lujan Grisham is facing Republican challenger Mark Ronchetti. This is a race where a lot of money has been spent. Friend of the podcast, Curtis Segarra, recently crunched some of the numbers. He found both candidates together have spent 
$6.7 million on the general election campaign so far. This feels like a competitive race, perhaps more competitive than some of the prior gubernatorial election cycles. What's your take, Gabe? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, the money spent is remarkable, right? I mean, you think about we'll probably get north of seven, maybe eight million. I mean, I, I would not even put it out of, of reach to say 10 million. Jeez. You know, given that they're going to be a ton of spending down these last couple of weeks, that's big money, right? Especially here in New Mexico. So I think the amount of money spent immediately tells me it's perceived on both sides that this is a close race, right? Ronchetti would not be able to raise the amount of money that he has if there was not Republican donors who perceive he's going to have a chance to win this race. So that's always an indicator to me is like the amount of money raised always to me is, is a good barometer of how the campaigns themselves perceive the races. And, and clearly they think on both sides that this is something still up in the air. Um, I've, I've said consistently, I think when, when we first saw that Ronchetti won the primary and we knew what the matchup was going to be, I said, look, this is Michelle Lujan Grisham as the incumbent Democrats race to lose. And in essence, I think that's still where we're at. Um, I don't actually perceive this to be within five percentage points. So I don't see it as, as a tight race per se, but in the modern campaign era here in New Mexico, like single digit win seems like a tight victory, right? Given that we don't have the the big landslide elections, at least at the top of the ticket uh, that much these days. So I think Ron Ketty still has a, a fighter's chance in this. Absolutely. Uh, but I would not be surprised if, if we wake up the day after the election and see that uh, Governor Lujan Grisham keeps another uh, four years in office at somewhere around seven to nine percent. That That's kind of where I think we're at right now. There have been a few debates in this contest. Um, those have been hosted by some of the other media outlets in New Mexico. Do you feel that those have had any sway in this election? Because they have been pretty contentious, those debates. Yeah, they have been. A lot of fireworks in those debates, a lot of personal attacks, not as much substantive policy discussion as I think some New Mexican voters would obviously like to see. That's in theory what the debate's supposed to be all about. And, you know, the reality is, especially as a greater number of voters cast their ballots early, the impact of debates, even late action in campaign ads and such is minimized, obviously, because a larger and larger share of New Mexicans make up their mind very early in the election season, try to cast their ballot as early as possible. And we've seen those numbers of early vote tallies, right? suggesting that there's a lot of enthusiasm because a lot of folks are already casting their ballot. So those debates don't have as much of an impact these days as you might expect. Keep in mind, right, the average New Mexican voter who participates in an off-year election cycle like this, they tend to be more educated. They tend to be more strong partisan. Um, so all those factors mean, for the most part, they're pretty, pretty well-informed about the campaign before the debates even happen. So in essence, they're probably looking to the debate as a reason if they're on the fence to swing them in one direction or the other, but that's a, a small and diminishing number of voters across the state. A lot of these folks that participate in an off-year election when there's not a presidential ballot to cast, right? A lot of these folks are pretty well informed and know what's up in terms of the policy issues well before the debates even happen. You mentioned substantive discussion about like policy and changes um, that was a little bit, I felt like also lacking during those debates and maybe even in some of the ads that we've seen. When we first talked about this race in June, you mentioned that you thought this race would get dirty. Four months later, here we are leading up to November. What are your thoughts? Has it been a dirty race for governor? You know, it, maybe not as dirty as I thought it would, but but I but I hesitate to say that largely because you all know 
in, in tracking these elections with me over the years, I always tell you, if it's going to get dirty, it'll get dirty like the week before the actual election. <laughs> Folks usually say whatever they've got until right at the end. True. Um, and so far, probably the most, um, you know, I would say you know, personal attack, if you will, that's had some traction is, you know, the, the allegations uh, about the governor, Lujan Grisham, in, in terms of sexual harassment. I think that that campaign ad probably is indicative of, of what the Ronchetti campaign had to unleash on the governor. And maybe they've already used that and they don't have anything else. Uh, but that's probably been along with not so much a personal attack, but framing the governor's stance on releasing some of these criminals in the context of trying to make crime a big issue. I thought that was a pretty effective campaign ad and, and mirrors what I've seen a lot of Republicans utilize against Democrats across the country. Uh, so that crime issue obviously has a lot of salience here in New Mexico, given where we are in terms of crime rates, violent crime, et cetera. And so the question will be, you know, has Ron Ketty done enough damage um, with some of those um, you know, attack ads, if you want to call them that, to, to pick up some of the pace that he needed to. And I think that's going to be one of the big questions that we'll all ponder as we run into election night. I know you hit the projection issue just a little bit earlier, but just to, to summarize that one more time, what I'm getting and hearing from you is that you think this is still Governor Lujan Grisham's race to lose and that in all likelihood, she she may be the winner on election night. Is that how you're feeling? Absolutely. And, and just some context uh, for, for our viewers out there that, that might not have seen some of the earlier spots. We've talked about, you know, the projection side of it. A couple of factors that are important that, that I look at, even before we know the candidates, we know incumbents in New Mexico almost always get a second term for governor's office. That's just our history as a state. We tend to give folks another four years to implement their policies. It's actually rare when we see somebody not get a second term. So you've got that context. We obviously have a lot more Democrats in this state than Republicans, and you're seeing that play out in terms of party registration, so forth. So when you've got all those factors at play, we know essentially Lujan Grisham has somewhat of an inherent advantage before we even knew it was gonna be Mark Ronchetti who was gonna challenge her. And so then you ask yourself, you know, has Ronchetti done enough to overcome some of those obstacles? And I think he's run a great campaign. He's raised a ton of money. He's got his voice out there. He had independent name recognition. All those things are helpful. I just don't see uh, that he's had enough game-changing moments in this campaign to make up that difference that he already started with at the beginning of the campaign. One of the maybe weirdest parts of this race, I think, is how much meme usage is going on on the internet, particularly with regard to the governor's race. Curtis Segarra also wrote a bit about this on krqe.com. One of the most popular memes being spread was those bad for New Mexico. Have you seen these, Gabe? Oh, absolutely. I remember talking to Curtis for that 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 uh, spot that he put up. So we had a good conversation about, you know, those those uh, memes, what they mean, what this kind of symbolizes in terms of where we are with politics. Uh, you know, it's an interesting conversation to have, I think. Yeah. And, and for listeners who haven't seen these, they're basically photos with a candidate's name, a funny or weird take on something like, say, someone hates green chili or spells it with an I instead of an E. And these memes have targeted both Michelle Lujan Grisham and Mark Ronchetti this election and sort of turned into a way that people are communicating about politics. Gabe, do you have any insight into what's behind this? Maybe is it a weird marketing strategy from like candidate supporters? Is it a fluke, just the internet being dumb? Or do these goofy jokes actually speak to the larger discussion about politics today? Yeah, great, great question. I think a little bit of all of the above. Um, and I'll, I'll unpack this and then walk folks through it. 
I think first and foremost, right, in this digital-oriented campaign dynamic we have in the United States, not just in New Mexico, you're seeing a lot more digitally-focused campaign advertising for a couple of reasons. Probably most importantly is it's inexpensive. Right. You don't have to buy TV ad time from KRQE and other networks. You know, if you have somebody who's very good at, at putting those packaging together, you're pumping these out and it, it's not free, but it's really, really inexpensive and can reach a large number of people really quickly. So I think we're going to see much more of that in terms of just campaign strategy moving forward every single election cycle. Right. Mm. Other thing we know and just tracking every single survey, for example, that I asked during campaign season, we always ask, where are you going to get most of your political information? An increasing number of New Mexicans are going to social media to get their information and especially younger voters. Right. So if you look at like at least in, in my social media world where I'm getting most of these memes, especially these that we're talking about, they're coming from folks younger than myself. Right. So I think it's logical that you're going to see more of this, especially aimed at younger voters who spend upwards of five, six, seven hours a day, if not more consuming digital information online. Right. And so you add that all up together, relatively inexpensive. You can reach a large segment of folks and you've got a lot of really passive consumers of information, particularly young voters, right, that are seeing this on their feeds, right? So I think that's the context in which we should analyze these. Now, I guess the bigger question is, are they effective, right? Um, I'll say like my take on this is, uh, for the most part, right, this is more about entertainment than actually persuading voters, right? There's not a whole lot of substantive conversation about policy in this. And if you think about where are you likely getting this information from, right? People in your personal networks, which probably for the most part, the political science literature says already in line with your political values, probably already share your party. So it's not as though these are probably going to swing a lot of voters to say, you know what? I was thinking about voting for Mark Ronchetti, but now I just saw this meme, so I can't do it, right? I don't think there's, I don't think there's a lot of that going on. But the most interesting thing to me is the underlying thread under all these means, regardless of which one you, you take a look at, right? whether we're framing it as, you know, the, the one that I saw most recently was I think uh, Mark Ronchetti uses ketchup on his enchiladas, right? Like they're funny, more entertainment. But if you take a step back at it, what's the underlying message that I think the folks that created these are sending? Mark Ronchetti is not a real New Mexican. He's not one of us. He's not from here. Right. That's a playbook that folks have used against candidates that are not actually like multi-generational New Mexicans like myself for as long as I've been walking the planet. Right. So it's not a new playbook. It's not a new strategy. I think just the packaging and how this went viral, that's the new added dimension to it. But we've been talking about candidates and whether or not they're really New Mexican for generations. Right. That part of it, to me, really not a new a new song to sing, if you will. You think of some of the pack ads, one of the themes along those lines in, in much of even this governor's race has always been trying to tie the candidates to the politics of other states. California gets always brought up as one of them or, you know, say Southeast states sometimes on the other side get pulled into, you know, you don't want to be like this state, that state. So there is still some of that comparison that happens um, to your point. It's been a, obviously a long time topic in politics here in New Mexico. Yeah, hmm. Absolutely. And it's that fine line, right, of where politics moves from substantive policy conversations to pure entertainment. And for me, I'd put these memes a little bit more in the pure entertainment range. But again, the underlying message here is when you think about Ron Ketty, remember, right, he's not one of us. 
so to speak, right? And you've actually seen, if you're paying close attention, some of Governor Lujan Grisham's most effective campaign ads where she tries to personalize herself. What does it always end with? Sometimes in Spanish, she's one of us, right? There's a reason why people get paid all those big bucks to analyze that focus group data and come up with these campaign messages. So let's turn to a race that hasn't got as much attention, but it is also among the big and important races when you talk about the uh, state level. It is the race for attorney general. This is between two candidates here, Democrat Raul Torres, who's the current Bernalillo County District Attorney. He's held that position since 2017. He is facing Republican challenger Jeremy Gay. Jeremy Gay is a political newcomer. He was in the Marine Corps JAG program or Judge Advocates program, prosecuting cases essentially as a member of the Marine Corps. So name recognition, I think, is certainly one thing to note here. Torres is a familiar face in this race, but being that he is probably the most recognized prosecutor in New Mexico who is on the news all the time, for better or for worse. So in that context, right, even though Torres maybe has more name recognition than, say, Jeremy Gay might, does that ultimately help him or hurt him in this context? Yes, a really interesting question. I, I would say like nine and a half times out of ten, Name recognition is incredibly valuable to a candidate. In fact, right, that's what candidates, if they don't already have independent name recognition, you know, the easiest example would be Mark Ronchetti, who, although, you know, until he ran for, for the Senate race, right, was a relative newcomer in politics, people knew who he was, right? And they recognized the name, they trusted the name. Candidates spent a ton of money and energy trying to get that resource, right? So name recognition, incredibly valuable. And the fact that uh, Raul Torres has that name recognition because he's battle tested in statewide races before. That's an incredible resource for him. The one caveat is, right, the context in which this race becomes so important is because crimes perceived to be out of control in the state of New Mexico, right? So this race becomes more important than it usually would because voters, right, among their top three issues are saying crime is something that they deeply care about. So that puts a bigger spotlight on this race than it normally would because you perceive, like, what is the attorney general's job? Most New Mexicans would say, aren't they supposed to fix crime, right? So having independent name recognition and all that for, for Mr. Torres is almost always positive. But what you're trying to do if you're Mr. Gay in this campaign is remind voters, wait a minute, why do you know Raul Torres? Because he's been a top crime fighter in the state for some time. And shouldn't you put some of the blame for why crime is as bad as it is on him, right? So that's where name recognition sometimes comes with some baggage if the oppositional candidate can really attack you with the fact that we know the name, but do we know it in a positive way? Has crime gone up or gone down in the context of, of this individual's time as somebody who's been given authority to do something about crime? So that's really, if, if you will, the, the backdrop in which we should think about this race coming into election night. I recall in the primary, we asked you about Gay's chances in this race, and you said he has a puncher's chance, or in other words, if he lands the right punch, he could win. We also mentioned just how difficult this role has been for Republicans for over a century. Republicans have only won that seat three times since 1912. Has Jeremy Gay landed that figurative punch yet? No, it hasn't happened yet. And he's running out of time to make that happen. Right. I mean, this New Mexico, we're a combat sport state. So, like, you know, you're, you're never going to count out somebody that still has a perceived puncher's chance. We've seen Holly Holm make the, the incredible happen. Right. But remember, she did that 
with her right foot, not a punch. Um, and so the Republican candidate really has to have some game changing moments. And walking into this, I think on election night, I said, if Raul Torres does not make any major gaps or mistakes, he's going to win this race. And he hasn't made any of those yet. He's run an effective campaign. He's done what he had to do. Um, I don't really even see this being close at this point. But again, when we say a candidate has a puncher's chance, that means down the home stretch, can they capitalize on something, whether or not it's a very, very effective campaign message, an attack ad, uh, coming up with something that shifts the voters' narratives and their minds going into election night? That's really what gay has to have in order to really make this much more of an interesting election night. And I just have not seen that yet. And again, remember, right, you're running out of time, not just because election night is getting here, but every single day, an increasing number of voters are casting their ballot early. And that just doesn't leave a whole lot of votes on the table to make things happen. And I, I just don't see uh, waking up the day after the election and seeing Rob Torres not have this race in his hands. He's, he's run an effective campaign, very good, savvy politician. He's done what he had to do asking that projection question again, you see this one landing with Raul Torres is what it sounds like. Yeah. You know, I've, I've never got one of these wrong yet. Knock on wood. Hopefully this isn't the first time, but I anticipate on election night, we might actually be calling this one among the early races in that evening. On another note, redistricting will be a big factor in this election, particularly when we think about the state's congressional district races. Uh, in my opinion, I think all three of these races are going to be something to really pay attention to due to these redrawing of political boundaries. This is the first time these boundaries will have been tested. So let's start with what is clearly the most contested race in this election. You mentioned this off the top, Congressional District 2. For the last decade, the district was pretty much split in half horizontally, covering the southern half of the square that is New Mexico. Now, CD2 has been redrawn. It ropes in parts of Westside Albuquerque, the South Valley, and just in short, a lot more Democratic voters. It's been a hard-fought race between the two candidates here, Yvette Harrell, the Republican incumbent, and her Democratic challenger, Gabe Vasquez, a former Las Cruces city councilor. Is this still one of the most watched races in the United States? Absolutely. You know, I don't know if it's, uh, you know, used to be like we'd be saying maybe this is a one or two percentage point race, top competitive in the whole nation. I don't know if it quite most national, you know, experts are saying this is kind of in the second tier of those really toss up um, elections. So it's not quite like what once upon a time, like New Mexico's Albuquerque district used to be like the tightest race. We don't have that scenario in play this time around, but I definitely think it's very tight. I could see either one of these candidates pulling this thing out and waking up as, as the victor the day after the election, it is tight. And I, th I think this is one of the only races that still to me remains Right. Something that I don't quite feel comfortable definitively walking out and saying, I know that person's going to win. Um, this one is tight. And I think it's what's going to keep us up late if we are up late on election night still talking about. It. So if you had to take a guess or a projection at this point, which way is this race leaning? Well, you know, some context there. Right. Before redistricting, I thought Harold holds on to her seat with relative ease, um, especially. And this is an important point that I want to emphasize in an off year election environment. I think in 2024, we're going to have a little bit of a different conversation. I'll allude to that before we finish up with this race. Uh, but I think, you know, you think about redistricting with redistricting, as Chris laid out, you know, you pull more Democrats from the northern districts and put them into the southern congressional district, which makes this more competitive. Right. It gives Harold a little bit of a disadvantage in terms of redistricting so much. So let's not forget the Republican Party has filed a lawsuit because they believe there was partisan gerrymandering in this district that made this 
in their view, unfair for Republicans to have a, a good chance of retaining this seat. So and whenever you see a lawsuit, right, they perceive that there was some wrongful redistricting in here in the context of partisan gerrymandering. So that just tells you, right, that they perceive redistricting is going to matter. And so the question is, right, will putting more in there for the most part, but not exclusively Latino Democrats into that district, is that going to make enough of an impact for Harold to lose her seat? Um, in an off year election cycle, keep in mind, you tend to have lower turnout. People that participate tend to be, as I laid out earlier on, more highly informed, more highly partisan, older in terms of age and demographics, et cetera. So it's a little bit different electorate than when we're talking about a presidential election cycle where that turnout just shoots up a lot of voters who don't typically pay close attention to politics. In that environment, I don't know if Democrats will have enough of those new voters, right? If we think about the last time Democrats held this seat, what was it? It was a big wave election where Democrats across the country saw more first-time Democratic voters, younger voters, immigrant voters, all these folks that typically don't vote at high rates turned out in high numbers. You'd have to have that same storm in play for Harold to lose her seat. I don't know if we're going to see that in this election cycle, right? In 2024, when we're gonna potentially have a big wave election for Democrats, completely different story. Right now, if I had to hedge my bets, I'd probably say Harold holds on to her seat. Uh, but a couple of things I really wanna emphasize, right? This race to me has been very much nationalized. You're seeing the same playbook that Democrats and Republicans are using nationally in this race. For Vasquez, what that means is, he's really tried to emphasize abortion as the policy issue to try to court voters with. That's what Democrats are using across the country uh, because the last thing they really want to talk about right now is the economy, right? And so Harold, what is she doing? Trying to emphasize, right? Connecting Vasquez to a lot of the national themes, defund the police, some of these other things that have been a national playbook for Republicans and talk about the economy as much as possible because Democrats know that's where they're vulnerable. You start talking about the economy, that from all polling I've seen, when you ask folks the follow-up question, which party do you think has a better chance of pulling us out of this recession or doing good on the economy, however you frame it, that's where Republicans start to see an advantage. So that playbook, if you will, that the candidates have used, that's a nationalized um, agenda. And that's essentially what I've seen throughout this campaign. I want to ask you one more hypothetical about redistricting here. There was some controversy about this seat, Congressional District 2, as the state's legislative Democratic majority headed into the 2021 redistricting effort. It really took place across that entire year, pretty much. Uh, I recall after the November 2020 election where Harrell won the seat back from Democratic control, Social Torres Small had the seat, Brian Egolf, the New Mexico House Speaker, said in a news conference with reporters, quote, this is the last election for New Mexico's Congressional District 2 with a map that looks like it looks now. So next time it'll be a different district and we'll have to see what that means for Republicans' chances to hold it. So with that quote, the implication seemingly was that Democrats control redistricting or the power to redraw the boundaries and that the party's chances to take CD2 might be sort of permanently better changed after that process. So here we are, 2022, redistricting happened, CD2's boundaries were redrawn, Democrats have more of their party's voters now in the district. The question, if Harrell loses and Vasquez wins, how much of a role do you think you can attribute to redistricting, or how much of a role does sort of the amped up Democratic ground game have in that race? 
Well, redistricting always matters, right? I, I've always said, you know, I put out a big uh, overall evaluation of the state's redistricting plan not that long ago. And, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about redistricting because in my opinion, it's the most divisive, but maybe most important political process we see not only in New Mexico, but anywhere across the country, because in essence, it sets the rules and the context for all elections 10 years after those redistricting maps are implemented. So you wouldn't have as much energy, as much money spent, all those lawyers getting paid on lawsuits, all of that, right? If we did not know redistricting matters. So clearly if Harold loses the seat, absolutely redistricting will have a big say in that but keep in mind right like every 10 years we go through redistricting and we still to use an athletic metaphor right you still got to go out there and play the game right so candidates still have to make things happen they still have to raise money all that right still probably has much more of an impact on the outcome of a race than you know underlying boundaries from the maps and and and, and the, the the slight shift if you will uh in the context of the redistricting process uh, so the thing to keep in mind is right if we're talking about more Latino voters, Latino Democrats moved from Southern Albuquerque into the Southern Congressional District. The fact that Democrats made sure that they had a Latino candidate on the ballot, that doesn't just happen by happenstance, right? And I would anticipate Democrats, every chance they get, want to run ideally a Latina candidate at the top of the ticket for them in that Democratic uh, district down South now with those more, more Democratic voters, because they need a candidate to take advantage of, of what they see in the context of redistricting. And so if you're talking about a little bit more Latino voters, you need a candidate that's going to connect with them and mobilize them to get the turnout out. Keep in mind, right? This has always been the most heavily Latino congressional district of our three in New Mexico. That has not changed. And primarily the factor that we look at is in terms of Latino turnout, that Southern congressional district has always had the lowest Latino turnout of our three congressional districts. So you need a candidate to reverse that trend to take advantage of whatever resource the redistricting process provided to them. The question will be, has Gabe Vasquez done that? We'll find out on election night. We've mentioned how redistricting also affects New Mexico's other two congressional districts. Let's talk about Congressional District 3, covering most of northern New Mexico, but now also stretching down into oil patch communities far south into places like Hobbs, Clovis, parts of Roswell and Artesia. Historically, CD3 has gone to a Republican once since it was created. That happened in a special election in 1997, with Republican Bill Redmond holding the seat for a year and a half. Will CD3 be a closer race between Democratic incumbent Teresa Ledger Fernandez and Republican challenger Alexis Martinez Johnson? I think it could be a little closer, right? If just to, to kind of connect the dots for our conversation about the Southern Congressional District and redistricting, right? If, if folks know anything about redistricting, right, you're dealing with the census population numbers. And so if you're taking uh, at least perceived Democratic voters from somewhere and you're moving them into the Southern Congressional District, by definition, what does that mean, right? There's fewer Democrats up north in CD3. So that should, in theory, make it a tighter race, uh, make it a little bit harder for Ledger Hernandez, who's the, the incumbent Democrat in that district, to pull things out. But let's keep in mind, this is one of the safest Democratic seats in the entire United States, right? So we might say it's going to get a little bit closer. That doesn't mean that it's going to be a tight race, right? And I do not anticipate that we'll be staying up late talking about that race race. This is a pretty easy one to call really early in the evening, because again, it is a pretty safe Democratic seat. And the Democratic incumbent candidate hasn't made any major missteps. There hasn't been any big game changing moments. So whenever you have that scenario, 
you know, us knuckleheads that try to make these forecasts for a living always feel pretty safe and comfortable saying the Democrats probably going to retain the seat. What do you think it will take for maybe a Republican to win in CD3? It seems like maybe a big gaffe on the Democratic side is sort of one of the only things I can think of that would take for a Republican to sort of gain ground in a race like that. But the question being, what do you think it would take for a Republican to win CD3? Big gaffe, big scandal on the Democratic side. Um, Only other thing I could see making this an interesting race is whenever you have an open seat. So if, if Ledger Hernandez decides not to run again or something happens that that creates a vacancy and you've got no incumbency advantage, which is huge in politics, that gives Republicans their best fighting chance, right, to make something happen um, in a district that definitely means Democratic. And in order to capitalize on all that, you need to have an extremely charismatic Republican challenger, right? You got to have like a great candidate to seize on some opportunities for a gap or misstep, an open seat race. That's essentially what would have to happen to make this uh, realistic for Republicans to be able to take. Congressional District 1 is the last district here to talk about. It covers mostly Albuquerque, but now after redistricting, it shed some of its Democratic voters and roped in a few more conservative communities on the map to include the north edge of Roswell. The contest this time is incumbent Democrat Melanie Stansbury, who won a special election for the seat in 2021, versus a perennial candidate for Republicans, Michelle Garcia Holmes. What's your projection for CD1 amid redistricting, and do you see Stansbury or Garcia Holmes winning? Yeah, you know, I remember it wasn't that long ago. We'd be talking about this Albuquerque district as a key bellwether district. I remember the Heather Wilson days where this would be like a two percentage point race. Uh, That's not today. (laughs) This is this is a pretty safe Democratic seat, even with redistricting that's brought in a bit more conservative voters into Albuquerque. This still is not one that I anticipate. Right. Staying up late in the evening tracking. Um, I think that the Democrat incumbent has done quite a a good campaign. Um, I anticipate that we'll probably be waking up on election night and talking about this potentially being a double digit win uh, for her. I, I don't see that there's been a whole lot of really game-changing moments in the campaign. Garcia Holmes has run an effective campaign, but keep in mind, one of the reasons why incumbents win more often than not in congressional races, right, is because you have a very difficult time if you're the challenger raising enough money to really overcome some of that incumbency advantage dynamic. And that, that obviously has had an impact in this race. Yeah. And if you just even look at the local television scene, you can definitely see that Garcia Holmes and Stansberry have not really been part of the advertising picture um it's it's mostly been many of the other races you've seen more pack ads for uh yvette harrell and gabe vasquez's race in a single day than you could see in weeks i would say almost for this uh, cd1 race so clearly a different dynamic in that yeah whenever you see let's say congresswoman stansbury is the incumbent democrat in a pretty safe democratic seat not having to spend a ton of money by getting on TV ads, that's an indicator that their campaign perceives that they've got a pretty safe opportunity here to retain their seat and they want to hold on to that war chest for future days when they might need it. Same question. What would it take for a Republican to win CD1 and make it back towards those Heather Wilson days where it was still very uh, close in many races? You know, you got to have a dynamite candidate on the Republican side that has the financial resources to get their campaign message out there. Right. So, you know, we got 10 years until we see another redistricting. 
cycle where maybe the district shifts in terms of underlying demographics. And the challenge for Republicans is not just in New Mexico, but nationally, right? That that bigger and widening gap between primarily urban voters who tend to lean more progressive and Democrat and rural voters that tend to lean more conservative, that gap is just growing and growing and growing. So as long as we continue to see the urban area here of Albuquerque, which is the most urban, obviously, in the entire state of New Mexico, trending in that direction of having more progressive minded voters, it's going to always be an uphill battle for Republicans. But we've seen it happen before in New Mexico. You get a dynamite candidate with enough resources to get their message out there in an environment like we just talked about, where maybe Stansberry decides she wants to run for Senate or run for governor or vacate her seat and you got an open seat. That's where I would anticipate Republicans having their best chance to be able to swing it. Last question I have for you, Gabe. We know the New Mexico House of Representatives is also up for grabs this election with every House seat on the ballot. Are there any races to watch for in the state House this year? You know, not a ton of action on, on the House side. It's interesting, right, because we've got like every seat matters, right, in terms of the campaign season. And, and all of these folks are, are trying to retain their seat. I just have not seen a whole lot of really interesting fireworks for us to like pick out a couple of interesting races just yet. Uh, But the thing that I want to emphasize to voters, right, whenever we say politics is local and local politics matters, I will give you this one to close out with because I anticipate whatever scenario we wake up with and folks are finished watching us on, on the evening, breaking down the local politics, and they might click on CNN real quick to see what the congressional map looks like and what, what things look like big picture for Congress. Almost every single scenario that I've talked to national reporters about leads to very contentious, very stagnated congressional politics at the national level with not a whole lot of big policies happening, right? Regardless of what happens, there's going to be divided government, right? What does that mean? That means our state overall policy agenda matters much more so across the country than it normally would because states are going to say the federal government isn't moving on a lot of important issues like reproductive health like immigration right those big issues that voters care about that means whoever wins in terms of the legislator is going to have a lot more opportunity to make things happen at the state level so i'll leave you with that voters right pay close attention cast your ballots turn out for your local races, because it's going to matter a lot more after election night this time around, because I don't anticipate we're going to wake up and see either party having a clear advantage in Congress, which means local politics is going to matter even more than it usually does. Absolutely. I mean, it has just been so increasingly true over the last several years, particularly when you think, I think, in the, the tail end of the Trump administration and the COVID responses is, is a great example of this. States were doing so much more differently than say the national federal response. And a lot of that was due to just the disagreement that happened every day in uh, federal level government that was going on at the time. People paid a lot more attention to their local politics, especially over the last two years, for sure. Yep, yep. And let's not lose sight of that. Local politics always matters for voters out there. You know, who your legislator is and all those lower down the the ticket races probably is gonna impact your everyday life much more so, right, than we think about the federal race. Gabe, thank you so much for joining us again and unpacking all of this. We'll look forward to doing this again with you on election night. So viewers and listeners, stay tuned on KRQE. My pleasure. Great conversation as always. Thanks for having me. Again, big thanks to Gabe Sanchez, who has always been there for us on KRQE and KRQE.com through the years. 
fun fact, if you go back in our KRQE YouTube page and you look at the earliest posted videos, there's clips of Gabe Sanchez in there talking about the uh, candidacy of Sonia Sotomayor on the Supreme Court of the United States from many, many years ago. That was during the Obama administration, of course. So Gabe's been doing this for us for a long time. We'll have live coverage on krqe.com on election night. We encourage people to go on there throughout the evening. I'll be live streaming results alongside Curtis Segarra that whole evening. So if you're ever on the move, you want to open up those election results, you can have this live stream discussion uh, piped straight into your phone through the KRQE news app uh, throughout the evening. And of course, we'll be using our news app to update and push out alerts. So. That is a great way to stay in touch with all of the election night coverage, karaqe.com, whether you're logging on to the website or download the news app. Yeah, and we'll have reporters at all of the big uh, races that evening. I believe I will be covering Michelle Lujan Grisham. And then we'll also have a reporter, of course, with Mark Ronchetti. We'll be sending people down south. So we will have reporters all across the state to bring you the latest numbers after the polls close. Stay tuned on air as well. KRQE, Channel 13, and on Fox New Mexico. Thank you all for listening. You can always reach me in the meantime for a story idea, feedback, questions, concerns. I'm at gabrielle.burkhart at krqe.com via email and gburknm on social media. And I'm at chris.mckee at krqe.com. You can also reach me at, at TV. We also encourage you to leave a review on this podcast or share it with a friend. Uh, we love to get this content out to more people, if at all possible. And we appreciate y'all listening. Thank you. Thank you.